Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today has been called one of the top 40 women who have made the biggest impact in the outdoor industry. Shelma Jun is the creator of Flash Foxy and the Women's Climbing Festival, platforms meant to celebrate women climbing with women. She's a Korean-American who didn't even start climbing until her mid-20s. She's also a co-founder of the Biking Public Project and the Never Not Collective, a group of storytellers looking to profile everyday people doing great things. But these days, she's become a face for the changing demographic of the climbing world. And she's spoken and written about the importance of creating a climbing community that reflects and welcomes everyone into its ranks. Here's her story. You know, as I was getting ready to talk to you, I was trying to get a handle of everything that you're involved in. And I think I lost count at some point. Uh, <laughs> where do you get the energy for everything? Um... I don't know if it's the energy. I think I just have a hard time saying no. And I get really excited about projects and just the idea of such cool ideas coming into fruition kind of drives me. Mm. I think that, I, you know, the fact that a lot of what I work on are kind of spaces or projects that don't exist right now. And whether I suggest it or somebody else suggests it or an opportunity comes up for something to be created, the possibility of something that is very exciting to me, being able to come to fruition. I think that's kind of probably what drives me. Mm. Something that I think is important, you know, and yeah. and would be so cool to see happen. Let's go back, if we can. Uh, where did your love for the outdoors begin? I think my love for the outdoors began just growing up as a child. I'm a Korean-American immigrant. I was born in Seoul, the capital of Korea. Mm -hmm. And um, I moved here when I, to the States when I was four. Mm -hmm. And my family was always really into the outdoors. And if you've ever seen photos of Korea, it's an incredibly lush, mountainous region. And people in Korea are really into going into the outdoors and camping. And so that was kind of already seeded into my childhood. I remember setting up the tent in the backyard and having, you know, sleepovers in the backyard. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I grew up, my family didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. So we never went on any vacations, you know, I used to call them airplane vacations, we would never go on any vacations <laughs> where you would go on an airplane. I'm from a family of three kids. So you know, five people, it's pretty expensive to, to have trips like that. And luckily, I grew up in California, which has such a plethora of opportunities to get outside just within you know a short drive so we spent a lot of time our vacations going and camping and going on hikes so I think that kind of firmly established uh the outdoors I was also really into the ocean I started surfing when I was in high school so yeah I think you know growing up in California gives you a lot of opportunity not everybody does it but it gives you a lot of opportunities to get outside yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so parents were into the outdoors. Uh, siblings too. How many of you? Three? Is that right? Yeah, there's three of us. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And um, my brother is also really into the outdoors. And he also grew up. I was in Girl Scouts. He was in Boy Scouts. Um, it's really cool that the BSA, the Boy Scouts of America, are now making it an all gender opportunity because I remember thinking like, man, the Boy Scouts are doing so many more hands-on activities mm. than the Girl Scouts offered. And so kind of also the ability to go on trips with my brother's Boy Scout troop 
you know, to go rappelling or to go on kind of these longer hikes was a really great opportunity for me as well. Yeah. Does the middle child label apply to you or <laughs> how, oh, how accurate absolutely. is that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I'm like the strange, crazy one that like nobody quite understands. Um, I'm very different from the rest of my family, but I'm really grateful because they kind of um, – don't necessarily understand all my life choices, but respect that I am a strong, capable person and that I, and I'm also, you know, somewhat more, you know, uh, that I can, that I'm not going to make bad decisions. I'm not going to make decisions to, you know, negatively affect other people and, and that I can take care of myself and kind of don't understand my lifestyle, but trust me to, to know what's best for myself, which I really appreciate. Yeah. You mentioned surfing already and uh, really connected to water sports then because swimming and water polo uh, were early ones for you as well. Was that a, a competitive thing? Was it more about the sport itself? Uh, what what drove you in uh, those pursuits? Yeah, um, I swam competitively for nine years. So I started swimming, I think when I was in probably in between third and fourth grade and really loved it. I've always really loved the the, the water and swimming is always been relaxing for me. You know, you, I'm not a runner. I never get runners high. I've given it a good go. But, you know, <laughs> runners talk about, you know, oh, like I'm having a stressful day and I get outside and I run and it gives me an opportunity to just kind of let go of everything and I feel calmer. That's very much how I feel from swimming. And then when I got into high school, I got into water polo. Actually, my first year of high school, there wasn't a women's water polo team. Mm. So you had to play on the men's team. And so the summer before my sophomore year, I joined the men's team and I was training with them. There was one other woman on the team. And right before my sophomore year started, our league decided to start a women's water polo team. So that was really cool. Um, I was captain of the varsity water polo team for three years. And mm -hmm. to get to lead a team that is filled with a lot of new who had never played the sport before it was a really cool opportunity and a really great experience and then that kind of led into surfing since I lived fairly close maybe 30 35 40 minutes from the ocean mm -hmm. and um yeah I mean the water is great and kind of you know later in high school I got into snowboarding that was really what drew me into the mountains and kind of established my my love of them ah yeah but not climbing yet at least in those days no i didn't start climbing until probably i was 27 or 28 i didn't really seriously start climbing until i moved to new york city um no i uh it's funny because i lived in the eastern Sierra. i lived in a small town just north of mammoth lakes called june lake a small town of 300 people and i used to drive through bishop all the time and I would always wonder what all these people were doing there in the middle of winter. Uh -huh. um, and I had no idea that it was this climbing Mecca. And even right where I, where I was living in the Eastern Sierra, there's um, like Backer Boulders is over there, uh, Hartley Springs. So there's even a lot of awesome little bouldering areas over there. And it's very close to Tuolumne. So um, yeah, I had no idea the kind of wealth of climbing that existed in a place that I was already really strongly connected to. So what got you into it then? Uh, if, if it was mostly once you reached New York City, how did you choose climbing over anything else? Yeah, um, well, the love of all these sports led to a lot of injuries. <laughs> and um, 
let's see, in 2006, at the end of 2006, I think my very first day of the season of snowboarding, it broke my arm in half and I had to have three surgeries on it. And then the following year I had shoulder reconstruction surgery where I had to like sleep sitting up for two months, had like six to eight months of rehab. It was a really serious surgery. And so I wasn't, I was told not to do anything where I could like fall onto my shoulder for at least two years Mm -hmm. for the risk of re-injuring it. And um, at that time I was snowboarding and downhill mountain biking and skateboarding. So kind of none of those fit. I was living in San Francisco (laughs) at the time. Rules all of those out right away. Yeah. And I was living in San Francisco at the time and a girlfriend of mine, you know, invited me to go to the climbing gym. You know, she was like, hey, if you're on a top rope in the climbing gym, if you do fall, you only fall one or two inches of rope stretch. And I went and it was great. But then I was moving very shortly after that um, back down to L.A. to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I uh, spent two years in L- back in L.A. getting my master's in urban planning, which kind of didn't leave any time for anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after I graduated, I moved to New York City and it seemed like a perfect time to kind of explore something like, you know, I had really enjoyed climbing and it kind of was a perfect opportunity for me to really take some time to explore it. And um, since I was pretty far from the ocean and the snow is not great (laughs) in New York City, it also um, was a good fit. Yeah. What is it like to be a climber in New York City? Because it seems like such a far removed place from the outdoors. It's great. Um, The climbing community in New York City is incredibly special. I think, you know, it's very diverse. People are really excited about climbing. They're really psyched to get outside, whether it is to go on trips out west or to go up to the Gungs, which is about two hours north of the city mm-hmm. and yeah the community here is great and i think you get a diversity that you might not find in other places because everybody here i mean it's very rare to have someone who's just a climber in new york it's like i'm a climber and a carpenter or i work with this homeless nonprofit, or i'm a dancer or you know um everyone is involved in a lot of different cool things and i think yeah. that brings a lot of uh depth to our climbing community yeah it makes people interesting uh, more than more than one-dimensional people just bring something different to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what point in time are we at right now when you make the move to New York City? Like what year are we talking? Uh, I moved to New York City in the summer of 2011. 2011. Okay, so it mm-hmm. takes a while yet before Flash Foxy comes about. What prompted Flash Foxy or how did it uh, come to fruition? Yeah, um, you know, I, I moved to New York... I made my first climbing friend off the internet, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> um, uh, not because this was a bad experience. It was a lovely experience and we're still very good friends to this day. Um, just because, you know, now understanding the safety risks of, of climbing, I don't know if I would put my safety in the hands of somebody I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very lucky. My first climbing friend, Mike, was incredibly knowledgeable and safe and a great teacher and mentor for me. But um yeah, I mean, I I took kind of an unusual route for somebody who gets into climbing in this day and age in that um, I kind of like immediately started climbing outside and immediately started climbing trad. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Off the deep end, so to speak. Um, yeah, and I loved it. I mean, I remember the first time I went to the gunks and I was two pitches up and hanging off, you know, 
like a hundred feet off the ground and just thinking like, this is it. This is amazing. I love this. Yeah. Uh, um, maybe, maybe some uh, explanation would help first. I mean, I know what you mean when you say trad, but just in case somebody hasn't understood the nuances between sport climbing and trad climbing and, and what pitches are too. Yeah. So in climbing, there's a couple different ways um, to do it. There's bouldering, which is kind of um, the most simple to explain. You have no ropes. You just have a pad that you put on the ground and, uh, the typical boulder will be anywhere from like seven to 12 feet, but they do get higher than that. Yeah. And then um, you can get on a rope. And once you get on a rope, there is uh, where the rope is already hanging at the top and that's called top roping. Mm-hmm. And if you, if there is no rope hanging and you have to bring it with you as you go up, that's called lead climbing. Mm-hmm. And within that, if there are bolts in the wall that you get to clip your rope into, that's called sport climbing. Mm-hmm. And then um, if there's actually nothing on the wall and you bring your own protection that you put in, that you temporarily put into the wall that the person who's following you up removes, that's called traditional climbing. Yeah. And that's what appealed to you. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the hardest stuff right from the get go. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I, and I loved trad climbing. I loved coming up to the gunks and, uh, at that time, you know, climbing is at a, such a different place now. I go to the gym. I mean, first of all, there's only really one big gym in New York City at that time. Now there's at least six or seven. Um, and at that time, there just weren't really that many strong women. Now I go to the gym and, you know, women are climbing 513 and and sending V9 in the gym. And, you know, there just weren't – there's probably a handful of women who are climbing at that kind of level. And I just – it's really exciting to see how many there are now. But um, – yeah, you know, I grew up playing a lot of male-dominated sports, mm-hmm. and I appreciated the value of my female relationships. And I had had some really great female mentors in my early twenties, and I think so. I, was, I think I was seeking those those kinds of relationships. And I met a couple women in the fall of twenty thirteen mm-hmm. who were climbing at a similar level to me, also starting to learn trad also really excited to get out there and push themselves and we just started doing these weekend trips going out there climbing together pushing each other um we all had different strengths so it was you know we were helping each other excel on different types of climbing and learning together and you know i think climbing with women climbing with women just reinforces that we are capable because you have to be capable there's just us (laughs) (laughs) um there's no way you can defer. Like one of us has to climb that pitch. One of us has to clean it, you know? And so I think it forces us to not fall into the trap of thinking we are not ready or we're not capable. Mm. And that kind of um, space to learn was incredibly empowering for me. Now, just to clarify too, uh, if I've got this right, a pitch would be like a length of rope. Is that, is that more or less correct or what? Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not always the entire length of the rope, but it's the length of one session on that rope before you bring the next person up. Right. Okay. Yeah. And as mm-hmm. for, uh, and just another point of, of, uh, explanation. So like a five thirteen or et cetera, that's, that's the ranking system that climbers would use. Yes. And so it starts at what, what would, what would sort of a baseline be that it starts at to then progress to something just absurd that, you know, only the world's best are climbing. Yeah. I think, you know, thank you for calling me out on all these <laughs> climber lexicons. We're so, we're so esoteric about these things. Um, yeah. Uh, so I mean, climbing, 
tends to start at like, you know, it can start as low as five zero. I think anything okay, in the yeah. beginner level would be somewhere from five two to five six. And, you know, kind of going from five seven to five ten being more moderate, five nine being more moderate, kind of five ten to five twelve being advanced. And, you know, um, the, I think the hardest sport climb, so rope climbing is yeah. rated with this five point system the yosemite decibel system and i would say i think it's like 515 d okay um and um so anybody climbing you know 14 above is a pretty elite climber and then um in bouldering it starts with the v scale and i would say anybody climbing within like 511 and above is like pretty elite Perfect. I think we've covered the the necessary language. <laughs> to, to, yeah, uh, no, thank you for, for calling me out on that. I appreciate <laughs> it. I forget our, our absurd, our absurd lexicon. Right. Well, every, every group has those uh, that, you know, that shared language. But yeah. So so you find this group of women and you click and uh, and you're climbing together. How does that then go from this group of friends to what Flash Foxy has become today? Yeah. Wow. Um, so it started as just an Instagram to post pictures of my girlfriends and I climbing and just to be psyched to have a group of women to share our stories, to be out there. And, you know, obviously Instagram was also kind of a different animal back then. Um, I think when we started, it was still where you had to take the photo in the app mm-hmm. at that moment or you couldn't share it. Yeah. And you know, there just weren't that many like brands or affinity groups out there yet on Instagram. And I think we're just learning, beginning to learn the potential of how something like that can connect people who may have felt that they were alone Mm. or that there weren't that many people like them. And so we started Flash Foxy and we just started to get hundreds and hundreds of followers, started to get thousands of followers, started to get um, a little bit of attention from the climbing industry, which, you know, I was so incredibly removed from, mm-hmm. especially because I live in New York. And um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, women kept writing us and asking if I knew ways for them to meet other women, for them to connect with other women, wanting to get out, wanting to learn a new way of climbing or wanting to learn to climb outside, but not knowing how to do it. Yeah. And I kind of looked around and I tried to see, you know, if there was anything I could, you know, direct them to. And there wasn't really anything like that at that time. There wasn't really any women's focused programming and climbing. And, you know, my background is in urban planning and community-based development work. Mm -hmm. And so my work at the nonprofit, the community-based design nonprofit I worked at in New York City was around bringing communities together and creating spaces on their terms and public spaces that reflect their communities and what their communities need. So that, you know, set up a pretty good foundation for me mm-hmm. to um, kind of decide to, to put together an event, uh, to put together the first women's climbing festival. We announced that the summer of 2015 and uh, you know, I really thought it was just going to be like 20 or you know 30 of us hanging out in the desert yeah. and we got a huge response for, from it and it became really clear it was much larger. It was going to be something much larger than I had anticipated, you know, us having to restrict the number of people who come even in that first year. Yeah. I've just finished watching, and granted, this is a very different type of festival, but finished watching the Fire Festival documentary <laughs> that is uh, such a buzzworthy topic these days. But, but that's sort of the frame that I'm picturing festival planning right now. 
Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is what is the planning process like for a festival? What did you learn from that process of the first one? Oh man, I learned so much. Um, well, you know, I didn't really even understand how the first of all how the outdoor industry quite works. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, I didn't really know anybody. I knew one person, my friend Colette. She was the only person I knew um, who was part of that industry. So you know, learning how the industry works, learning how I had never been to a climbing festival, so learning how climbing festivals work (laughs) and what they offer. It was an incredibly huge learning curve on like understanding what kind of permits I needed, how um, expensive it is to actually put on an event like this. You know, the first year nobody got paid and um, kind of also like learning what I wanted out of it. So for me, really, the participant experience is just a very is just one part of our goals for the festival. It's about paying the women who come and work on the festival, building that network and lifting each other up. It's about supporting the local community and working really closely with them to make sure that, you know, if we're coming to your community and and utilizing the resources that you have, that we're making sure to bring resources to you and, and be spending our money there and bringing awareness to what's happening in that, in that local community. Um, you know, having a stewardship aspect to it and bringing the responsibility of, of climbing and conservation and a lens to that. And, you know, and our goals have continued to grow, you know, having an indigenous land acknowledgement, acknowledging the first stewards of the land, um, Mm -hmm. providing more opportunities for folks of all underrepresented groups and talking about intersectional feminism. So, I mean, that first year was insane. I don't know why I thought I only needed like seven volunteers. That was a gross miscalculation <laughs> on my part. And um, I was very, very lucky that all the volunteers were good friends of mine who, without complaint, worked like a straight 48 hours yeah. um, to help me pull this <laughs> festival off when it became really obvious that we didn't have enough volunteers. But, you know, I think one of the biggest things I learned is like how awesome the community is too. When I announced it, all these women, you know, wrote me and offered me help with resources or connections or, you know, wanting to volunteer. Some of my closest friends in the climbing community are people I met through the festival that just cold call emailed me that first year, uh-huh. you know, um, would love to do a feature about it in a climbing magazine. Would love to um, come and shoot photographs. Would love to come and teach a clinic, you know? So I think even just, the willingness of people to come together and offer their help and be excited to be there. Like that was kind of the greatest thing I learned from the first festival and probably the main reason why I decided to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that was my next question because, you know, I've, I've planned small scale events where you're, you're preparing for one day. Uh, and you know, it, it was weeks after that, that I was ready before I was ready to plan for the next year again. Um, how how soon were you ready to sign on for let's do this all again for year two? I think I think it was definitely a couple months for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I was everyone kept asking me right after the festival, and I was like, "Don't ask me, I don't know." Right. And and so for me, it always has been like I want to do it, but I only want to do it if we can do it the right way. Yeah. And so that means like paying women, paying myself. You know, not expecting that if you're doing important social work that you should be doing it for free. Right. Um, So paying other women, paying myself, supporting the local community and, you know, really asking the climbing industry and companies to step up and provide support for it, which they have, 
which has been amazing. But yeah, I mean, so we decided to do it that second year. And that second year was kind of insane. I was actually in Spain when the tickets went on sale, which I don't know if you know, this has like notoriously bad internet. Okay. And um, <laughs> so I was in Spain. It was like 9 p.m. In, in Spain. I was sitting at this climber bar in Sierra and all these people started emailing me saying the website was down. That was like, they couldn't buy a ticket and I couldn't understand what was happening. I was really stressed. And it was this realization that the tickets actually sold out within like a minute. Wow. And we had that, that second year, we had 800 women on the wait list. And that's kind of when we decided to expand and do that second location in Chattanooga that yeah. second year. I mean, that sort of demand shows you the need. Uh, in the community Absolutely. for something like that. What, why was it important? You spoke about the social importance of this. Why was it important for you to do something like the festival? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's important to create affinity spaces. And I've I've written a little bit about it. Um, I wrote about it for Climbing Magazine a few years ago. But, you know, I think that, you know, the climbing culture and dynamic that exists right now was crafted by the people who were climbing at the beginning of climbing and those were predominantly heterosexual cis white men mm -hmm. right so the culture reflects the people who were there and i think you know the, the demographic of climbing is changing rapidly and i don't think we as as women or as people of color or as queer folks you know if we want to be climbers but don't feel like that that identity that exists now fits us that we have to just make it fit Right. I think we can change that to be a better reflection of all of us that now exist in climbing. And what spaces like the Women's Climbing Festival or Call of the Crag or kind of these other affinity spaces provide is an opportunity for us to experiment around what that could look like when we aren't feeling the pressures, the social, you know, the pressures of social norms of acting in a certain way in the spaces that already exist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that concept of acting in a certain way or... or kind of fitting into social norms. I think a good example of that in your story is sort of your uh, relationship with the word tomboy, how it, how that has changed through time. If you could um, dig into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I think growing up, I was always self-identified as a tomboy and I kind of wore that, wore that label proudly. And I think, you know, I felt when I was growing up, it was very... Um, bifurcated like there was only two options you could either be like a really girly feminine girl who really embraced your feminine side or you could be this tomboy who kind of turned up their nose at that that you know was active was outdoorsy um was athletic and kind of you know i've been really trying to turn away from that you know i think it's problematic for a word to describe athletic women to have the word boy in it in the mm -hmm. first place yeah um it's kind of infantilizing and also, you know, a, a male-centric description. Um, and so I've been really trying to encourage people to think about the fact that we are complex, that we are multitudes, that we can embrace our feminine side and, and see what it means to be athletic as a woman and not have to use language that has been created around men to describe those those athletic feats or those outdoorsy characteristics. Right. I mean, that being said, I also want to just put in a little quick plug that like, I think the word tomboy has been also used very positively mm -hmm. in um, the gender queer community as a way to help describe women or folks or non-binary folks who um, 
my present as women or have or were like born as women but identify more with their masculine traits so i don't want to say that like tomboy as it's been used historically is negative in all ways but in the way that i'm specifically talking about it i don't think it has been positive sure um you know you put a you put together a survey on climbing in 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 gyms and got 1500 people to fill it out people across the spectrum and uh and it was quite interesting to find maybe it's not a surprise i'm not sure but but almost two-thirds of women said they felt uncomfortable, insulted, or dismissed at some point in their training. I mean, what was that a surprise for you to find? Was that pretty much par for the course of what you'd experienced? Um, what what was the what was sort of the result of that survey for you? Yeah, um, I wasn't I wasn't super surprised, but it's nice to have the numbers. I think women, and I'm not saying those that those experiences have all been the same for me, but I think what's not surprising to me is that most of these experiences are very similar to experiences women deal with on a daily basis, mm. uh, whether it is in the office, whether it's in social situations, whether it's on the street. So it makes sense. Like, why would the gym be this kind of place where these social issues aren't aren't presenting themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, as women, we're historically asked to prove ourselves, uh, you know, a woman constantly has to prove that her feelings are valid. I think, you know, a lot of women can relate with the feeling of being asked, oh, maybe you're, maybe you didn't understand. Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe you're overreacting. Maybe they didn't mean it that way. So constantly the onus of um, proving your and validating your feelings is on you, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's really can be a relief to see something with numbers like the survey that shows you it's a systemic problem and it's not an individual problem. I think what was uh, notable about the survey and why, I mean, why, because it really did take off and get a lot of attention. There's an assumption, I think, certainly an assumption that I had, and I think uh, subsets of the climbing community had that, that that community is immune to the problems that we've seen in other sports, that climbers are supposed to be known as a more open-minded bunch, but this survey challenged that uh, what what came after the survey for you or how did people respond uh to that uh emotionally there was a lot of emotional <laughs> response to the survey no um i think there was like uh, quite a backlash online it precipitated several very long threads on climbing forums i think people were feeling quite defensive about it And, you know, I think some of the arguments just I found to be a little bit disappointing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, one of the arguments was like, well, climbing is better than any like some any other sport that I've done. And I'm kind of like, well, I think as climbers, we can set a higher bar than that. Right. I think I think our bar doesn't have to be like better than soccer or like better whatever. I mean, I don't really know what sport people are referring to, but like better than whatever the sport that you're talking about. Like, I think our our bar for our community can be higher than just better than some somewhere else. It can be just better period. Right. Without a qualitative aspect to it. And, you know, I think climbers have just like you said, been historically like narrated themselves as these people who challenge like traditional lifestyles and traditional ideas of success. So, you know, my hope is that like, if that's how we're feeling, like, let's, let's, be a trailblazer in in helping to make climbing an even more welcoming space. Yeah, yeah. Have good conversations come out of that as well? Have you noticed progress come out of uh, that survey? 
Yeah, I mean, I think out of the surveying, kind of there's just been a movement in general, I think, beyond the work that I've been doing. I think the work, you know, through Flash Foxy came at a time where there was this large women's movement, the Women's March, and kind of this, you know, entire focus on on the challenges that women have faced. And so I think it's been a mix of maybe the work that we've been doing, but really also that, like, there is more acknowledgement overall in the climbing and outdoor industry as well as, I think, kind of in our society as a whole that, like, there is this, you know, disadvantage that women face systemically and that we should be thinking of ways to bring them up and support them. Yeah. Uh, You have uh, become... I don't know if a figurehead is the right word, but it's certainly a face and a spokesperson in the climbing community and uh, a very visible example of both a woman in the outdoors world and a person of color in the outdoors world. And it's not to say that people of color uh, and women aren't, you know, aren't in the outdoors because they're there, but, but we don't often see them represented or seen uh, and, and seen for climbing. Um, how do you find being a spokesperson or being looked to for answers because it can also be very difficult for any one person to represent a, you know, a, a broad group of people with different backgrounds and interests and experiences. Absolutely. I mean, it's actually not difficult. It's just impossible. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's absolutely impossible for one person to represent the entire spectrum of people. Um, and I think it does a disservice because it doesn't allow for people's stories, their own individual amazing stories to come out, Right. Um, because we kind of get lumped into this category. You know, my hope is that that I am, you know, um, a spokesperson that, you know, more will come. I think, like you said, I think it's a mixture of the outdoors and these activities been historically labeled as like, um, like stuff that white people do, which right. I think is wrong. Uh, plus the fact that the people who have been here, their stories and voices and faces haven't been uh, amplified. So I think like the answer to your question is, is that it is really difficult. So my hope is that we'll just continue to see more and more people of color and women and queer folks um, out there and their stories being told to show that there are all these different aspects and challenges that, that we each as individuals and as groups face and that there needs to be room for all of them. And you can't just find one of us and like check the box yeah. and pat yourself on the back <laughs> and like go on with your day. Right. I, I want to pivot away from climbing for a moment, but I think this uh, this is in the same lane, something that you've been involved in, uh, the Biking Public Project. It's something you co-founded, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. What is? Tell me about the Biking Public Project and, and yeah. what, uh, what that mission is. Yeah, so the Biking Public Project is... Um, it's still active. I'm no longer an active part of that organization, mm-hmm. but um, I co-founded it with several other uh, bike advocates in New York City in 2012. And, you know, originally started as a group called People on Wheels. And then we had some like trademark issues <laughs> and we needed to rebrand and we rebranded it as Biking Public Project. And what it was is that it was a minority bike coalition. So it was around um, kind of very similar to what we're talking about in climbing right now of one, you know, minority, like people of color are already out there biking. Yeah. It's not that we're not biking. It's just that we're not being represented in media. And then and, and for us specifically around um, 
like advocacy policies. Yeah. And for example, like delivery cyclists, you know, they're a huge part of the New York City bike community, but their needs and their challenges were never really talked about when talking about bike lanes or other advocacy initiatives and policies. Mm -hmm. um, so really wanting to lend a voice and um, way to to celebrate the, those people, the people who are already out there cycling and also show folks who might want to cycle, but maybe feel like it's inaccessible, that that there's a way to do it. And we kind of started out. Uh, and so my background is, you know, in urban planning and my graduate thesis was on 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 bike advocacy so it's something that i feel really passionate i've also you know used bicycling as my main mode of transportation for over 12 years now mm -hmm. so biking is a huge part of my life and so yeah you know they the biking public project continues to be active they work around a lot of bringing awareness to groups that don't necessarily have a seat at the table around bike advocacy and they should yeah yeah so it, it's, in some respects, at least trying to shift a focus away from cycling where some people might think cycling, oh, that's only people that are out there in spandex and, and, and out there for a long, you know, 100 kilometer plus ride um, or miles, if, <laughs> if we're talking in your case, I suppose. Uh, but but that just people use bikes to get around and not just a certain subset of people, but but many people. Yeah. And, he, and they have needs. Yeah. And a lot of people do bike because it's really affordable, you know, and it's a very affordable way of having transportation and um yeah i think absolutely there is this idea and i mean and it was it's been perpetuated by the bike industry of who you see in advertising right mm -hmm. and who you see where all of that is targeted to um yeah i think it's funny there used to be this acronym um mammal m-a-m-i-l and i think it was like or mammals uh or i think it was like middle-aged men in lycra right yeah okay yeah. and um you know i and I'm not as uh, connected into the bike advocacy community now, but yeah. there's certainly, I know, a lot happening. I'm actually currently shooting, um, making a film about a woman that I know from New York who now lives in Georgia, who is training to become the first African-American female pro road cyclist. And her, her name is Aisha McGowan, and she's doing it in a way really trying to build a community and a lens around advocacy and representation, which is exciting to see. Yeah bring it back to where we started uh, and, and me trying to get a handle of everything that you've been involved in. How did the Never Not Collective begin? Yeah, uh, more of me being really probably <laughs> super excited. Um, I think for me, the idea of the Never Not Collective started with, I think it started for me having this the privilege of knowing so many amazing people who are doing amazing things that um, are accomplishing awesome feats and working on really great important things and not seeing those stories being told in the outdoors and really seeing kind of the same old stories over and over again and feeling frustrated about it and I'm sure you are seeing a theme where I'm kind of like if I don't see it and I want I think it should happen there's a very good chance if I see it's possible that I'm gonna go and try to do it um mm. and so you know wanting to see these stories highlighted wanting to tell these stories and wanting to make sure they're told in a way that really highlights the important parts of, of what um, folks are doing out there. That mixed with meeting uh, Colette McInerney, who I mentioned was, you know, my first friend in the outdoor industry and Julie Ellison, who was the former editor in chief, the first female editor in chief of climbing magazine and kind of thinking, you know, 
my background isn't in filmmaking. It's not in media. I really want to work with other women on this and kind of also, you know, design and like creativeness, it's like creative energy is iterative. Like it's always going to be stronger from having more eyes and more viewpoints and more skills than I as one person can have. So yeah, I kind of just told them I, you know, I, I talked to Colette and Julie separately and mentioned, you know, I think it'd be really exciting to create this collective for multiple reasons. One, you know, to tell the stories I think I wanted to see out there to create a community of women media makers. Um, the New York Times had an article maybe like six or seven years ago now um, that I read that said of the top 500 grossing films in Hollywood at that time, 1.9% had been directed by female mm. directors, which felt preposterous to me. And, you know, seeing those kinds of numbers and then, you know, just kind of acknowledging that the female perspective is not going to necessarily be better than the male perspective, but it's going to be different. Our experiences are the lives that we've led are different. And because of that, like the way that we decide to tell a story or what we decide to highlight is going to be different. And I think having more variety is better for our community. Mm. This year, in addition to the two women's climbing festivals, there's uh, going to be an additional festival for all genders. Um, what prompted this and why now? Yeah. Um, let's see. You know, I think it's something that has always been something I think would have been a cool idea. I just didn't really have the capacity and resources to do anything else. And like, that's the thing with the Women's Climbing Festival is that I don't think it's the end all be all of, of growing and supporting each other. And I don't think that this new all-gender event is replacing the Women's Climbing Festival. I think they're complementary. Mm -hmm. I think they serve different purposes. And um, I'm excited to be able to provide this other event that is going to provide a new space for these conversations to happen. Um, you know, and it kind of stemmed from understanding that, like, the Women's Climbing Festival shouldn't be the ultimate goal, you know, that it shouldn't be that women should just be climbing together all the time. And that's it it should be that we're using the space as a creative outlet to build relationships, to build confidence, to, to experiment about how we define our relationships and, and interactions within climbing. And then really growing that into the, the more mainstream culture and community of climbing. And I think this all gendered event that's focused on celebrating women is kind of this stepping stone for us where it kind of creates like a little bit more of a curated space for these conversations to happen, uh, bringing everybody into it and creating a learning environment for, for everybody. From something that started, you know, as a, as an Instagram page, <laughs> just sharing pictures of friends. Uh, it's pretty incredible to see where things have gone. Where, where do you think they might go yet? Where do you envision uh, flashbox? He could go in the future. Oh man. Uh, you know, honestly, like, I've never been good at that. <laughs> I'm very much like fly by the seat of my pants. You know, Flash Foxy and Never Not Collective, like those are my third and fourth careers. Um, I used to be a certified public accountant that worked for a really big public accounting firm. And then I worked in urban planning and, and having the privilege to, I just want to also acknowledge that, to decide to change my career, change my path. And with Flash Foxy, it really hasn't, you know, as opportunities and need has come up, we've been trying to work to take those opportunities and take advantage of them and provide as much as we can. So I think you'll kind of, you know, the way you could see us growing is 
probably growing into trying to provide more resources. Like, I don't think you're going to see 10 more women's climbing festivals, yeah. let's say, right? Yeah. You're not going to see a repeat of, of the women's climbing festival growing and being the same thing, but you're going to kind of see us using Flash Fox as an opportunity to, um, to experiment and see what are, are other ways that we can help grow, not just women, but help support all these underrepresented groups. Any final thoughts or things that I haven't asked that are important to, to bring to the table today? Um, I think just that it's really exciting. I think, you know, I'm at this point, I'm just one person of an incredible cohort of leaders bringing the conversation around underrepresented groups, around body positivity, around people of color, around queer folks. And even within queer folks, you know, it's not just about like sexual preference, but it's about gender identity and all of these issues. Um, I think, you know, around adaptive climbers and adaptive outdoor folks, I think there just is this huge explosion of groups and leaders who are bringing light to the folks who are out there doing, you know, who are part of our outdoor community that maybe have historically felt very undervalued. And um, having that kind of support of each other and having it show all these different perspectives is incredibly exciting. And I, and I think that's what I'm most excited about is to kind of see how we all together can support each other and, um, and grow the recognition around, around these groups. Thanks for your time, Shalma. It was great to speak with you. Yeah, thank you. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Shalma, you can head to flashfoxy.com. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating, and a review. And most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also reach me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. (music) 